So if you would, uh, we're continuing in our series um, that comes from the book of Exodus. It's called Echoes of the Exodus, the journey of the church so far. For those of you, maybe if you weren't with us last week, be comforted. We are not going to try to make it through all of the book of Exodus. Um, that would be quite a daunting task. And so we're just doing a five-week series hitting on some, some key themes, some key highlights, specifically from Exodus. And this morning, we're going to be in Exodus 16, 1 through 12. One of the things that I hope that you're picking up on is that we are trying to have um, the main focus, the main idea from the sermon be the main focus for the entire worship service. And so you've probably heard us use the word provision about 920 times by now, and that's a good thing. We want the whole of the service to be unified in its mission and its vision, um, and so we, we want to make sure that we are driving home one very, very clear point anchored in the gospel. And this morning, that point is this, that God provides for our truest and deepest need and sustains us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. God provides for our truest and our deepest need and sustains us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, right away, that means that we have to confess what our true and our deepest need is, right? And if we, if we have a different presupposition than what the gospel seeks to meet, then we're off, we're off base. God can't meet or won't meet a need that is not our truest and our deepest need. So what is, what is our truest and our deepest need? Our truest and our deepest need is to be reconciled to him. Remember from last week, what is the whole point of, of redemptive history? There's one single solitary thing that God cares about. And that's to dwell with his children, to be with his people. And we saw that last week that the reason that he delivered them from Egypt was not so that they could go and do whatever they wanted, right? It wasn't that he was granting them freedom so that they could run around in the wilderness or pick another place to live and do all kind of crazy stuff. The reason that he brought them out of Egypt was so that they could worship him in true freedom in spirit and in truth right? And so if we forget the purpose and the mission and the true will of God, if we don't understand what our true and our deepest need is, we're probably going to look for help in all the wrong places, which we do, don't we? We're going to hear a lot of ourselves this morning in this story from the Exodus. And if I really wanted to be cruel, I would read it out of numbers where it's even more gruesome and more grumbling, and it'll sound way too much like us. Because if you're anything like me, you forget what God has done in the past and are only concerned with what he ought or you think he ought be doing and what he ought be providing in the present, right? How many of you have gone to crank your car like I did the other day and turn the key and nothing happened. And all of a sudden you're thinking, what have I done? Seriously? Car can't crank one more time? God! And suddenly we make it into something spiritual when it's not really at all, something like that. But, and I use that as a small case. Some of you have even bigger ones. There's things that you prayed for and that you've wanted and the Lord, you feel, has not provided, and you think that it's some slight against you when he would say to you, but you have me. You have me in union with Christ in such a way that every other need would pale in comparison. And so we need to have right perspective so that we can know the help that we have received and know where to seek the help that we truly need in a time of trouble. Amen? 
And so that, I think, was also the problem for the people of Israel because the story that we're going to get into, we're actually going to skip two of their other grumblings. Like when they came immediately out of Egypt and they saw Pharaoh's army bearing down, remember what they said? Does anybody remember? They said, were there not enough graves in Egypt that we needed to come out here to be buried? Now, who were they questioning? Moses and his wisdom? No, their questioning was direct at the Lord their God. They were questioning whether or not he was truly good and suggesting that maybe he was cruel. They make it through that, and then they get to the other side of the Red Sea, and what do they do? They write one of the best songs that's ever been written. In fact, it's so good that it shows up in the book of Revelation. It becomes the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And so they break out in song, and they're so excited, right? And so you figure, there's, okay, maybe they're starting to get it. Well, all you got to do is make it to the end of chapter 15, and they come upon some bitter water at Mara. And what do they do? Do they turn to the Lord and say, all right, Lord, we're starting to get this. I'm, we're figuring this thing out. This water's bitter. We're going to turn to the great provided, the one that we know loves us more than anything in the world, and we're going to ask, Lord, would you in your grace and your mercy be so kind to your people as to provide sweet water? Is that what they did? No, they broke out and grumbling yet again as if God were cruel and didn't care anything about them, and they started to raise all kind of sand. And so Moses is instructed to take a stick and put it in the water, and it becomes sweet. Yet again, the Lord provides for his people. And so we're going to come upon yet another time where they get a little further along, and nothing is changing. Their presuppositions continue to be the problem. Their lack of understanding of who they are is killing them. Commentator John McKay says that it was a continued slave mentality that was destroying them. I would argue for many of us, it is a continued slave mentality that is destroying us. See, it's interesting. Most of us, if we were honest, would say, look, Cameron, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to get up every week and kind of be abstract and put it back on us to figure out. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, one, two, three, list it out. What do you want me to do this week? What can I do to please the Lord? Just spell it out. That's what... We want, right? I mean, let's be honest. It would be so much easier if it would just, God would just say, here's the one thing I want you to try to get right this week. And then here's what's interesting. If I came to you at the end of the week and I said, Susan, have you done the one thing I told you to do that I, you desired so much? What was she going to do? Who are you to come and ask me? Have you done it? I'm surprised you can see around that ginormous plank in your giant fat head to look at the speck in my eye. Interesting. And so now she's turned on me. Not, now Susan would never do that. She's so sweet. She just about would melt if rain touched her. But the thing of it is, that's us, isn't it? We want for somebody to tell us the rules, but we don't want anybody to hold us accountable to the rules, which is a slave mentality in the end. And so, my desire for us as the people of Christ Community Church and you, the people of God, is that we would be truly set free. And there's only one way you can be set free for real, and that is Christ and Christ alone. And so, this morning, what we're going to see is how the Lord provides for the people in the Exodus as a shadow, a pointing forward to 
the need that he's going to meet that is the greatest of all, which is to be restored to him, to have our sin taken and placed within um, the covering of the blood of Christ. I love that we sang the song about Emmanuel's veins, that, that, that plunged, you know, though I, like that thief, vile as he, to be plunged beneath that flood is really and truly to be set free. And that is my desire for us to understand what exactly that means and how that affects us. It's not just that, okay, you get saved on the front end, now you can go do whatever you want, but how that continually should remind us and affect us and change us for the glory of the Lord. Amen? All right. So, do you, uh, just as an opening question, something for us to think about, do, do, you, do you find yourself grumbling in the midst of the needs of everyday life? Do you find yourself like on just common everyday things? We're not, not even necessarily major things. That, that you think life ought to go better than it does. And what does that say about us? What does that say about who we are and what we truly believe? Now, I'm not saying that you should go through life um, with, with, with uh, you know, rose-colored glasses on, that we should be um, silly in our beliefs. There's going to be times we get challenged, and there's going to be times we don't get it right. I'm not saying that we need to be perfect in this. But my, my question is, do you, do you find yourself grumbling? And when you do, here's the important part. Where do you turn? Where do you turn for help? Because that indicates what you place your greatest trust in. Let's turn to the text. Exodus 16, verses 1 through 12. I'll read the first three verses, and then we'll get in. It says, hear God's word this morning. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Now let me pause right there for a second. So how long had they been in the wilderness? The fifteenth day of the second month, about a month and a half, and they're already on their third grumbling. Right? How long were they in, in slavery? 400 years. And tell me about it. What, what, was it. Was it getting better? Like was, was Pharaoh saying, you know, these, these, these Hebrews, man, they're great folks. In fact, we need to set them up well so they can go and worship the Lord their God. What, what, was, he, what was progressively happening to the people of Israel, God's people? Persecution was getting harder and harder and the whip fell stronger and stronger. So in this people's memory should have been the most harshest and most vile of, of what it meant to be a slave in Egypt. And they don't even make it a month and a half, and they're already wanting to go back. They already want to return to the devil they know. Let's turn back to the text, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Let me ask you this. What do you think it would sound like for 2.5 million people to get angry? What do you think it sounds like in your house when just two or three of your kids go to war? Or you decide to go to war with two or three of your kids? Think about this for a second, how overwhelming it would have been, the clamor and the just overwhelmingness for Moses and Aaron as leaders. Here they are being just overwhelmed with the people grumbling. 
And the thing that, that is so troublesome is had the people already forgotten how good God had already been? Why did they so quickly move away from God's faithfulness when it was so recent in their memory? How about you and I? And how quickly we move away from how good God truly is. And how anytime something changes, we immediately think that he's being malevolent or indifferent. Why is it that we are so quick to doubt and so long to believe in faith? What is it that goes on in our own heart? Is it, is it that we don't spend enough time with him? That's one possibility. Is it that we don't spend enough time in remembrance of him? That's another great possibility. This is something that I have found often with God's people that we don't do very well. We don't spend enough time gathering together to celebrate and testify to all that God has done and how good he has been. In fact, it's one of my family's Sabbath day practices. Like, if you ever hang out with us on a Sabbath, I'm going to give you two rules. One, you cannot complain to me on the Sabbath. I won't hear it. I'll get up and walk out. You're going to think I'm rude, but actually I'm protecting you, and I'm doing you a favor. The other rule is that we can only testify of God's goodness because I just don't think we do it near enough. And so often I just love to stop and save for Susan and I to sit down. We have this great little back porch in the house that we're renting, and I love to sit there in, in any place that we've ever been and just say, hey, how has God been good this week? Great question. And so often we just take for granted that all of the good things that happen to us are even what we would consider to be something neutral. But you got to remember, Christ holds all things together. Every good gift that is granted to you is from God your Father. Moments of peace, moments of, of, of love, moments of joy, moments of rest, all of that is from his hand. And think about it. Why would you have any of that in a fallen world? When a fallen world doesn't want you to rest even for a second, why would we not stop and say, Lord, how good you are to grant to your people even a moment's respite in a very broken and dark and fallen world, which is at war with everything that you and we are. So we've got to become a people who are better at remembering, who are better at relating, who are better at testifying. Amen? And I think that that will do something powerful for our hearts because, again, why would God respond again and again and say, you need to remember, you need to remember, you need to remember because he knows how forgetful we truly are and he knows how the tyranny of the urgent sweeps away everything that is good if we're not careful. <clears throat> text goes on to say, verse 3, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and, the, and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. Now, if we had looked at the previous grumblings, what we would notice is there's becoming an angrier progression in the people of God that they're actually growing more aggressive in what they're suggesting about who God is and what his purpose is for their lives. See, they've already forgotten. Do you really think in Egypt that they were eating to the full? 
Do you think that Pharaoh was providing an excess of meat and bread? No, they're looking at it in comparison. How many of you recognize that hindsight is a distortion? It ain't even 2020. It's always through these distorted lenses, which is why we oftentimes minimize things that have happened in the past. We're good at it, aren't we? We think that the devil that we knew is somehow better than the present circumstance. How many of you would confess and say, yeah, I'm guilty. There's times I've said, I would rather go back to the devil I know than try to be a Christian under these circumstances. I would rather be set free from this bondage of God's love so I could do whatever I wanted. Woe be unto you, your memory is bad and the present will get worse and you will learn a very valuable lesson. And so here the people are saying that it would be even that God would kill them. How can we say that of the Lord our God, who has done so much for us, his people? But if we're confessional, and I've thought it too, there's times I've thought, God, did you bring me here to kill me? I'll give you an example. Um, I went to Mercer University in Macon back in 1991. I lasted, this was back on the quarter system, so for some of you kids, you have no earthly idea what that is. Uh, that was a three-month time frame as opposed to the five- or six-month time frame that it is now. And so you'd have three quarters per year instead of two semesters. So on the quarter system at Mercer, I lasted all of, you guessed it, one quarter. And I hated it. I thought Sherman should have burned it flat to the ground and never looked back. But he didn't. And so as God has a grand sense of humor, when I left Macon, I swore that I would do everything I could to even go around it. I wouldn't even use 75 South if I could help it. I called it anathema. I didn't know what I was saying at the time. And so as the Lord would have it, there came a season in mine and Susan's life when I had to leave the job that I, that I was in because of some ethical issues that were going on that I could not agree to as a new Christian. And so I had interviewed all over the southeast, and guess where he called me? And when it was very clear to me where we were heading, I thought, oh no, God's got something to teach me that I didn't learn the first time, and this is not probably going to hurt. And so when we moved to Macon, Susan was pregnant with our third child. Um, and I was at work. And she went, and I knew something was wrong. And she went for the ultrasound by herself, and I, I regret it. But I was at a new job, and I couldn't be there. And she had what is called blighted ovum. And it's where the placenta continues to form, but there's no fertilized egg. There's no child in the womb. It's empty womb is another way of putting it. And so that, that was that day. And then a few days later, I uh, worked on the fifth floor of the building at the medical center, and I could see the area where my house was, and it was as black as coal at two in the afternoon. And I thought, that doesn't look very good. And so I pulled into my driveway, and all my neighbors were out in the yard, and I thought, what sweet people, they've come to greet us. No, they had come to look at the tree that had penetrated my roof, roof and drove a truss through my bedroom wall. I remember standing in the yard thinking, God, if you wanted to kill me, you could have done it an hour north. You didn't have to bring me down here to do it. But here's the beauty in all that, that God showed me his grand grace. Blighted ovum, unfortunately, is when the body senses that the fertilized egg is, it will 
potentially produce a profoundly disabled child. Now let me say this, my wife and I would have loved a profoundly disabled child. Don't hear me saying that I would not have loved that child, but it would have changed our lives forever. And in God's grace, for whatever reason, he knew that wasn't the plan for us. That wasn't in his will. And as hard as that was, I received it as God's grace. As far as the roof was concerned, we had bought the house. The roof was 15 years old, and it was pitted and needed to, be, needed to be taken care of, and we didn't have the money to fix it. So we got a new roof for the deductible, which was far less than what the real roof costs. And a number of things just came out of that circumstance that showed me, no, in fact, God didn't bring me to Macon to kill me at all. He brought me to Macon so that I could be closer to him and that he could show me in ways that I would never learn an hour north how much he truly loves me and my wife and my children. But I didn't see it in that moment as I stood in the rain in that yard. As part of that story, I really thought he was mad at us when I had a friend of mine help me tarp the roof, right? So it's 11 o'clock at night. It's still raining. We tarp the roof, and my roof is, is A-frame. Here's the problem. He and I tarped ourselves to the back of the roof on the high end, and we now have no idea where the holes are. And he looks at me and he goes, this ain't good. <laughs> he said, we're going to die. <laughs> I said, well, it's all part of the story, I guess. And so we inched along because my wife, she couldn't hear us. We're beating on the roof and she can't hear us. We, we were trying to get her to move the ladder, but we were, so anyway, we had to go across this slip and slide with these potholes everywhere. And obviously I lived and he did too. And so, uh, but I, I say all that to say to you is there's, there's, there's times when we just, as we see the circumstances, we can't see for whatever reason because of the limitations of ourselves. It could be sin. It could be any number of things. We just can't see what's going on. But in faith, my hope is that we will become a people who instead of our first move being to question God or get angry with God, instead to recognize, okay, God, you've done this enough. I know you love me. So let me take, let my first move be to ask, how are you revealing your love to me? How are you expressing that, that I have everything that I need in Christ and in Christ alone? What kind of people would we become if that was our first move? We'd be radically different, wouldn't we? And the world might would actually go, hang on a second. What kind of people are these? That would be a good thing. George Bush, again, not the former president, commentary on Exodus says this. Listen to this. It's in your bulletin as well. He says, how strange to hear the people of Israel speak as if it would have been better to drag out a wretched, degraded life and die a miserable death in Egypt, provided they could have plenty of food, than it would be to live under the guidance of the heavenly pillar in the wilderness with God himself for their almoner, which just means the great giver, provider, simply because they find themselves pinched by a little hunger. How crazy it is for us to say, I would rather go back to not knowing you at all, God, than to have to deal with the things that you're revealing in my life today. I would rather go back to the stench of death than to deal with the sweet aroma of the gospel of life which calls me to be transformed into the image of Christ. So my prayer is that we as a people could recognize where we turn, what our first move is, and to potentially see that change for the greater good. Amen?
Let's turn back to the text, verses 4 through 12. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, I want you to notice something, what God didn't say. God didn't say, I'm about to rain down hellfire on these jokers because I'm tired of listening to their grumbling. Now, does that mean that God doesn't at some point grow tired and decide that it's time for us to learn a lesson, right? He disciplines those whom he loves, correct? So there is a season in which, and I shouldn't say that the Lord grows tired, that's not true of him, but that the Lord recognizes that we need something different. But look at how gracious he is here. In response to them saying that he's brought them to this place to kill them, he chooses instead to grant them exactly what it is they need, bread from heaven. How gracious is God that he, unlike Pharaoh, instead of increasing their burden, instead of letting the whip fall harder, instead blesses the people that he loves with whom he he longs to dwell with and see them provided for as his children. I'm kind of glad I didn't read this passage when I was a parent, to be honest, because it's confronting, isn't it? And I don't always know where the line is. And I struggled, certainly as a parent. Sometimes I was way too harsh and not gracious near enough. This also confronts me as a pastor. It confronts me as someone who loves other people. That this God, who is gracious to receive again and again, and again, and bless, and bless, and bless. Would that if I'm going to look more like him, this is going to have to change for me too. And so he decides that he will provide for them, and he's providing for them, look at what he says, to test them as to whether or not they're going to walk with him, recognizing who he really is. The text goes on. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Interesting that this now is not a natural phenomenon. Like, you've had people try to say, well, you know, in that area, there was this little honey bread that would show up in the morning, so there wasn't anything supernatural about this. Well, interesting, who turns it on and off? Who makes sure there's twice as much on the sixth day uniquely and none on the seventh day. Who is it that makes sure that if you've got more than you're supposed to, that worms come and eat it, and it rots the other days of the week, but not on the sixth day? You understand that it's got to be supernatural. There's no way this could merely be but a natural phenomenon at all. And so here, God is saying something also very specific to them. Notice this. Have they received the law yet? Have they made it to Sinai? No. Well, what is this Sabbath discussion? Where does that come from? Well, it is inherent within the heart of creation. It's the day on which God said that he himself would rest, and he grants it to his people as a day on which to dwell with him uniquely. What a beautiful thing that our God from the very beginning created a day in a fallen and broken world on which we have the opportunity to reside with him in such a way that we are built up and we, be, we become rested and we are uh, worshipful and we learn yet again how good God is. 
Now, some of you might be getting uncomfortable because you may be saying, now, is Cameron fixing to say we can't watch the Falcons on the Sabbath? (laughs) Or work. Well, I can't bind your conscience. But what I am going to say to you is this. If you have no recognition of the Sabbath, and if your attitude is, I can't, I can't not, I can't not work on the Sabbath. Did you hear what you just said? What you really just said is God cannot provide enough for you so that you can actually observe the Sabbath in such a way that is glorifying to him and restorative to you. Now, I believed that at one time. Susan can tell you when I was working three jobs and going to seminary and trying to be a dad, my my thing was, I'll give God three hours. I mean, that should be better than nothing, right? I'll give God. (laughs) I'm giving God back that which he gave to me, right? So what does that even mean? And so it was one of the most beautiful things. Unfortunately, it happened in my seventh year of seminary instead of earlier on. But it was, I was almost out of gasoline. I I had so burned the candle out, there was not much wick, wax, or anything left. And so I finally made the commitment to say, Lord, I'm going to, on this day, I'm not working on anything other than just just basking in your glory and loving that you love me. And it was a phenomenal thing that happened. It was like an oasis suddenly sprung up in the middle of the desert. And I slapped myself on the forehead and said, what in the world have I been doing so foolishly for so long? Suddenly, my ability to produce the other six days of the week was maximized. Now, am I saying that this is the key to your prosperity? It is the key to your soul's prosperity, which is far more important than any other prosperity that there is. And so we see in this pattern something for our church that we need to be a people who learn how to Sabbath well, not because of law, but because of gift. Because the Lord is so good to us to say to his people, there's a day on which you step essentially out of the fullness of the fallenness and just rejoice in me. What kind of people would we become if we were rested? If we could remember and we could rest because of who God is and all that he provides. And some of you may say, well, Cameron, I'm really rankled by what you just said. I don't even know how to, where to begin on that. Well, well listen, He's not, I'm not saying you need to plant a flag and, and go cold turkey. This is not a cessation project. You need, God is gracious. You've got, you've got time to work through it. All I'm saying to you is you need to begin to try to work through it. And if you need creative ideas, come talk to us. Because we're here to serve you. Sam, I'm sure, would love to talk to you about this idea. In fact, he's slightly responsible for some of my, my views of this idea. And so it is an important thing that we as a people recognize it as gift and not burdensome law. And then it goes on, verse 7. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. I'm sorry, let me back up verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him for what what are we that you would grumble against us here Moses and Aaron are putting it in right perspective we we can't provide for you we got nothing to I mean we're in the same boat you guys are in 
It's the Lord that you're grumbling against, and yet it is the Lord whom you will see in his glory when he provides. It takes us back again that the whole purpose is for God to be known and to be able to dwell with and among his people. Amen? What a beautiful thing that God yet again desires that they would see the fullness of his glory and that he longs for them to be truly provided for because, again, he's staying to the mission. He wants for them to be able to have the freedom to be who they were created to be and are being recreated to be for us in Christ. It goes on. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. I love that, that the Lord calls his people near, not to harm them, but he's calling them close so that they can witness the fullness of his glory when he provides for them. He goes on, and as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. How often has that been our experience that, that we rightly know where to turn for help so that we can rightly know where to turn to worship when it is provided for? I mean, some of us may feel, you, you know, you may say, I feel kind of silly thanking God for everything. Well, you feel silly because of some distorted view that's crept in from our culture and our society. We should be the most thankful people of all. We should have praise upon our lips at all times. I mean, we should be the fastest to be gracious and grateful. And oftentimes, what are we as Christians known for? What we are against and what we grumble about. And that should not be the case for us. That should not be what it is that we are known for. And so the question for all of us is whether or not we truly trust the Lord to provide for our daily needs. Do we truly trust that the Lord is good and that he desires for us? Now, I know there are some of you in here who are still searching for a job. You've cried out to the Lord and you've said, Lord, I, I need to be able to provide for my family. Your word says that if I can't provide, that I am even worse than an infidel. So what, what can I be if I cannot provide? And I've been in that dark, long moment as well with you. And anything that we can do to help you and, and build you up in that and pray for you and, and come alongside you and do anything and everything we can to make sure that you're being taken care of, we, we want to do that. Which is one of the reasons that we have our deacons and our elders meet in the back corner every single week. So after, this, after our time together is over, after the benediction, if you need someone to pray for you, our elders will be located in this back corner. If you, need a, if you have a mercy need, we're, we, we want to be part of God's blessing. And so our deacons will also be in this back corner. And so if we can serve you in any way, shape, or form, please, by all means, come and talk to us and help us be part of, of what God is doing to say to you that he loves you. And so I know that sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to hear these things, to say that, that, that God does provide for daily needs, but he does. Not always in the time and the way that we would prefer, and maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe part of the problem is we're waiting on something to come that when so much has already passed us by. 
That's hard to hear, but it's true. Anthony Salvaggio in From Bondage to Liberty, the Gospel According to Moses, says this, The most important lesson of the wilderness wandering is not that we are incapable and insufficient in and of ourselves, which is certainly true. Rather, the lesson is that God is stronger than any enemy we face in this life. He is the God who provides for his people, and his salvation will not fail. He will bring his people home. Again, we must remember that the greatest uh, provision that we could have is that we get to dwell with the Lord our God. What is it that keeps us from him? What is the truest problem? Well, sin is what separates us from him. A holy God cannot, cannot tolerate sin coming before him. It must be consumed by his consuming fire. And so he, in longing to be with his children, does not want to consume them. So in the person and work of Christ, he provided what was our truest need, right? He sent Christ, the perfect, the, the, the son who was understood his will and was willing to say, though I would long for this cup to pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. And the author of Hebrews tells us that he did that because he was able to endure the shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him that would come from God's family being made very, very large. So how do we apply this sermon today? Well, we apply the sermon by first and foremost recognizing what our deepest need is. And our deepest need is that we are cut off from God because of our sin. And our deepest need is that we need Christ alone as Savior, by faith alone, by grace alone. That there's no work that we could do to be pleasing to God, which is good news if you are a failure like me. And we also need to recognize that God doesn't just stop at salvation, that he continues to provide to the person work of the Holy Spirit to continue to mature us, to continue to provide for us, to continue to, to represent his tabernacling, his dwelling with us, his people. And we oftentimes forget that, don't we? And we oftentimes forget that we have this opportunity to um, again and again and again, daily, recognize that his mercy is new every single solitary morning. I love what Stan Evers says in Christ and Exodus. Listen to this quote. He says, those who are lazy concerning their souls go hungry. Just as those in the desert went hungry who did not search for God's provision. So there's something that we, we must do, right? There, there's, there, so we get so tangled up in you can't be saved by works, and that's true. You cannot. But we have a responsibility and a duty once saved to participate in, in sanctification. Because some days you're not going to feel it. Some days you're not going to see it. And you're going to need to cling to the crucified when you've got nothing else to cling to. And so it is really, really important that we remember what the true bread of life is. I'm not going to read this whole passage. We don't have time for it. But here's what I would challenge you, the congregation, to do. Maybe sometime today as part of your Sabbath day devotional reading, maybe as a family, maybe you could study it this week. John 6, 25 through 51 is where the New Testament picks up on the truth of what the bread of life really is. And what's interesting, if you read that passage, I want to give you a couple of notations. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I have come to provide the bread of life. It's not what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. And it's interesting what the Jews do in that moment. It says they grumble. And they say, 
wait a minute. We know your mom and daddy. We know who you are. How in the world can you be the bread of life? You can do some of those other miracles. Go back and do some of that wedding at Cana stuff. But all this nonsense about you being the provision of God for his people so that they could dwell with him, we don't buy that nonsense. You don't fit what we want. How many of you might be saying that about this Christ, the true bread of life? How many of you maybe just like the Jews are grumbling about how he is providing for you and who he is? Be careful. What other bread of life do you think is coming that will be more perfect and sweeter than Christ in his person and his work? So take time to examine yourselves this week and ask, do you believe that God is good? Because that's a fundamental question in all this, isn't it? Because if we don't think that God is good, then how we view everything that happens to us changes. Now, I know that one of your great fears, and it's mine too, is that we're going to get caught holding the bag someday, right? That we're going to be the ones that are proved to be the real idiots in this whole thing. Well, let me say this. If there is no God, and there's no one else to save us, We're all idiots anyway. So why would it be that we would be more concerned about being more of an idiot in infinite nothing? Here's the good news. If there's infinite nothing, you can't be an idiot but for so long. And so I'm here to tell you from my experience and seeing how God has moved among his people and from his word that God is good. And he loves his people. And there are some hard things and some hard times, but I've seen him answer again and again and again. And so my hope for all of us here at Christ Community is that we would continue to cling to him as the true provider, recognizing that what he has granted us in Christ is better than a building. It is better than more money. It is better than staff. It is better than any, anything else that we could acquire at this time. And if that is our attitude, we will be the richest of all because of all that he has lavished upon us. Amen? Let me read Matthew 6, 25 through 33, just to close the sermon. And Josh and the band are going to come up, and we're going to have some, some, some songs that are going to continue to encourage us to recognize God as the great provider. And my hope is that um, as we take this time, I'm just going to do two, so as we take this time that you would meditate during this time on how good God has been, even this week to you, to grant you things that um, are not necessarily foregone conclusions. Hear God's word one last time. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you provide. Thank you that you are so kind that you tolerate um, our grumbling. Thank you that you chasten us when our grumbling has gone too far. Thank you that you so love your children that you desire more for them than they could ever imagine. God, thank you that though we would be satisfied with mud pies, you offer us this incredible and full and just overwhelming banquet as evidence of your love for us and as evidence of your great glory. May we be a people who recognize both. In Christ's name, amen.